Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm delighted to welcome you here this evening to the first public lecture given by Sebastian Barry in his role as Laureate for Irish Fiction. My name is Orla McBride, and I'm the Director of the Arts Council. The Arts Council is deeply committed to the individual writer and recognises the central place that they occupy in the cultural and the artistic life of the nation. Ireland has a proud literary tradition, and it is from the individual writer that this tradition stems and flourishes. The Laureate for Irish Fiction was established by the Arts Council to honour an outstanding writer of fiction, to support the next generation of Irish writers, and to encourage the public to engage with the best of Irish writing. The position is held by a writer for a period of three years. Over the Laureate's term, he or she teaches creative writing to students at University College Dublin and NYU, spends time developing his or her own work and participates in a number of major public events, of which this evening is one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you the Laureate for Irish Fiction, Sebastian Barry. to take the opportunity to thank the Arts Council for making me laureate because it's been a life-changing year let me tell you and also the gate for allowing us all in here on a Sunday all you Jesse Jameses and Calamity Janes and maybe a few Pat Garrett's thrown in just to put salt in the stew I'm very aware that this is the stage where uh, in Donald McCann's immortal words Kieran Ahern playing the attendant literally put the stew into the steward of Christendom. <laughs> uh, next year I hope to write about my experiences with Donal over the couple of years of the play because uh, next year, astonishingly, he'll be 20 years banished. And indeed, this lecture or whatever it is, is partly about that circumstance that we find ourselves in, literally being on the earth. It's called The Lives of the Saints. And briefly, yes, I'll have to sing. It's very painful, but it'll be quick. <laughs> and I will quote now in, in this brief few lines the recent Nobel Laureate for Literature. Oh, sister, when I come to knock on your door Don't turn away You'll create sorrow Time is an ocean But it ends at the shore You might not see me tomorrow All things pass away <laughs> All things pass away, our time on earth is brief, and yet we may feel assailed at great length in this brief time, and yet we may reach moments of great happiness. All this so true, it is only a truism to say so. Some people detest the modern habit of calling life a journey, and yet it is a peregrinatio and played out on a semi-sacred camino of sorts. Do you remember Peter Brook's film of Gurdjieff's Meetings with Remarkable Men. I suppose that is a dubious title nowadays, for where are the women in that? But we all may feel we have been a witness to some remarkable people along the way. 
And now and then the most remarkable, even the most important, may be someone with the lowest evident social status, or none. I think of my great aunt Annie, for whom I wrote a little novel, Annie Dunn, largely in an attempt to testify to her remarkable nature, if bitter as the crab apples she prized on her favorite trees. A woman with a hunchback and therefore in the mistaken and cruel thinking of her youth a hundred years ago, considered unmarriageable and further therefore destined to be childless all her life. And yet when my sister and myself were put with her when we were little on a tiny subsistence farm in Wicklow while my father and mother went to London to seek work, she turned out to be, for a four-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl, a very philosopher and almost inventor of mothering. How she bound us to her and her own cousin Sarah, how she harboured us, how she protected us, how she taught us to look beyond our own noses to the extravagant beauties of the hens like ballerinas in the yard, the helmeted cock, the angry king of all things. How, in effect, almost without meaning to surely, she taught us to see her in a way we had never seen anyone. How her solitary, turning, light-gathering, beautifully speaking self hovered for us in the damp Wicklow air like a revelation and the aquatint smudge of a human angel. How when we went, she and I, to the well for water, and we waited under the hawthorn for the great coin of liquid to clear after a neighbour's muddying of it, the zinc bucket creaking in the hook of her hand, and the fingertips of the rain touching and tipping our faces, I loved her with the open-hearted love of a rescued soul and a renewed child. But in the eyes of the world, what was she? A spinster without monetary resources, without clothes beyond the two dresses she owned and darned and perpetually spruced up, and a polka-dot apron, with half of her cousin Sarah's narrow bed for a niche in the world of dreams, dependent not only on the kindness of strangers, but that even more precarious kindness, the kindness of your kind. Let's not pretend that the four-year-old boy remembers nothing and is not already a sort of writer, a writer that, of course, cannot actually write. Indeed, I couldn't write, as I have sometimes confessed, till I was maybe eight. And that was because we followed eventually my mother and father to London, and in that exile, not from country exactly, but from Annie's soft influence and the influence of my Barry grandfather, Matthew, whom I also loved far past idolatry. I must have minutely panicked at such balks and tasks as writing. But a writer nonetheless, let's say who just never wrote, who was blocked from the get-go, so instead was noting and marshalling and itemising in his swimming head along the way. Otherwise, I could not have written the little novel much, much later. I could not have written it unless it was already written, on the air as may be. At any rate, I have tried to live by the example of that radiant woman all my life. So we travel on and look for objective correlatives of individuals like herself, our great, great aunts, and all those who strained in the constraints of their own adulthood, perhaps, to provide a sense of safety and shelter to us as children, which to my mind is the great purpose and ambition of the parent to lend a cloak of security and a bright hiding place of safety to a child, which I learned as a child, appropriately enough, 
in the first laboratory of things as provided by Annie in that long ago vanished, rescinded Wicklow locus. For in the manner in which she lived, no one now lives. Pony and trap, a milking cow, a pig to kill yearly, a few wet-nosed calves, an acre of wheat, a field of grass, stone mushrooms to guard her grain against rats, soft, wild, hand-dancing in the dairy to make the butter, proper, functioning pishogs, menacing fairies, turf fires and all. I speak of myself as a young writer then, aged four, and how at every age I have looked for or been fortunate accidentally to find what can we call them, avatars or examples or people of fundamental endurance, teachers in effect of not only how to write, since I would be obliged to write as well as I can anyway, but crucially how to live, for I must live as well as I can too, like anyone. I accept there have been one or two conventionally famous writers who have shown me in their different ways a class of indefatigable conduct and an apex of endurance, as if in some essential way we are always on what amounts to a strange war footing in life, not only as writers, but as beings who are merely alive. A war footing, even if the war thankfully seldom reaches us, the armies move along the landscape a few miles beyond the horizon. We hear of atrocities and sorrows in the distance, certainly. Let me not exclude here an avatar simply because he or she was lauded and maybe even burdened by the epithet great while they lived. The great writer rises to the moment and in himself or herself can be nothing more than normal as bread and yet will be expected to be otherwise and somehow holy, who will face that inconvenience and who will face the inconvenience, having been welcomed or not so welcomed into life as may be, of finally leaving it again. This troubled and troubling figure called death, being neither really the guide or by corollary the destroyer we sometimes give him credit for be, but some class of figurative waterfall over which our little skiff must eventually launch itself. That little extra tug on our boat being felt many miles up river as may be, and other than that oftentimes giving no indication or warning, and therefore no preparation can be possible for our sudden flight into air and scattering water with the bells and whistles of a myriad rainbows. Some years ago the postman brought a letter, the very envelope of which filled me with disquiet. The writing on it was in black ink, and I thought I recognised the hand. I brought the letter to a chair in the garden and braced myself to read. I had not been getting on very well, this person and myself, and I was obliged to ready myself for whatever the letter might contain. contain. I pulled out two full sheets of writing, and although the ease were not the Greek ease I was expecting, I still feared it. I started to read, it seemed to be about two of my novels, and I was suddenly surprised and gladdened that this person was writing in such praising terms. Were we at peace at last? I discounted the lack of Greek ease in my delight. Surely a praiser's handwriting can be allowed to change. The writer had certainly looked into the novels deeply and seemed grateful with a proportionate, proportionate depth for the experience. The letter was elegant, generous and wonderfully composed. I read to the end and there at the bottom was not the signature I expected. Written in full because in person he was a stranger to me. 
who lived so deeply and far away, in effect, I maybe thought nothing so ordinary as the post could bring that name into our house. I was so astonished I stood up, alone in the garden, but suddenly in a great crowd of thoughts, the reaction of the continuing child in me, I suppose, and shook for a bit, and then went into the house to look for Ali, my wife. By a piece of irony, she just so happened to be in the little space we call the laundry, actually on her knees, in rather worrying, Pinteresque fashion, I thought, in my adult way, and she paused kindly enough while I read her the letter, myself trembling still, overwhelmed, thrown into a state of happy stupidity, and only uttering the name at the end. Oh, my God, she said. Exactly. That name, in that severe and very permanent black ink, was indeed Harold Pinter. <laughs> Some weeks later, my friend and play editor, Dinah Wood, being a magical person, arranged a lunch in London. Harold Pinter was so ill, I'm about, I am bound to relate, it took him about 20 minutes to get out from his car to the table. Moving so slowly, he did not seem to be moving, like the arms of those huge new wind turbines in our nearby mountain in Wicklow. The two of us sat side by side, both of us a little deaf, and leaned in to talk our allotted nonsense and sense. It was very delightful and very strange, like an episode out of a young writer's dream, though I was fully 53 years old. Off he went, we dispersed, we went our separate ways. Not so long after he died, he had been very kind, very democratic in his sudden friendship, and very mysterious. Even in the extremity of an illness, he had thought it a good thing to write a long letter to a poor creature in Ireland he didn't know about that creature's books. It was something he had seemingly been intent on doing, illness or no illness. It was an impulse he had not neglected to act on, to offer praise and friendship to another damn writer, even in what proved to be those signal things, his last days. It seemed to me an astonishing thing to do and a thing full of meaning, even if, like most important meanings, it was elusive and more at the level of magic than anything else. Annie done to Harold Pinter, we must glean our wisdom where it lies, not where it is supposed or considered to lie, like the gleaners in Seamus Heaney's lovely poem, who go out after the harvest proper to, lake, to take the last poor stalks of gold light from the ground. If death is gathering people to have them at his own table, then maybe the best we can say about him is he has excellent taste in humanity. <laughs> but we may curse his haste, his inhumanity, and his crazy impudence all the same. Meetings with remarkable men and women. Let me talk about another person who thought their way into the circumstances of a young writer, as I then was, and made a highly pragmatic move to alter them. Valmol Kearns was born, according to the data, in 1925, but she was perpetually stocked with youthfulness. This was the secret of the freshness of her writing. She seemed to lead a quiet and retiring life, but she was a person of very particular vision and opinion. In her memoir, Friends with the Enemy, she is clear in her contempt for the rigid Catholicity of Eamon de Valera, she put her head above the parapet, I suspect, in a thousand conversations when it was perilous to do so, and worked on the famous contrarian magazine The Bell in the 50s, when Sean O'Fuelan and Anthony Cronin were editors. She is one of those writers who wanted to take Ireland by the scruff of the neck and demand maturity of it, a maturity we are even now still just inching towards. When I was 34 and on the cusp of marrying, not that I knew that, 
She and her friend, the northern writer Ben Kiley, conspired to get me into Estona. I'm not even sure why they did it. They just seemed to make it their business. My father, a poet of her generation, admired and liked Val, and so I knew of her before I ever wrote a word myself. I think of that generation as sometimes harsh and even half ruined by existentialism and a sort of national despair. It must have been a horror to find yourself an intellectual in that Ireland, yet she was an exception to that. She was the least despairing person. In the 80s, she published a novel called The Summer House, which I happened to review in the Irish Times very enthusiastically. She wrote me a note and said she was glad my parents had gone to the trouble of conceiving me. <laughs> Her writing went right back into the 1950s. A Time Out Worn was published in 1951 when she was in her mid-twenties and got an admiring letter from Frank O'Connor, who then galvanised himself into promoting her in America. At that time, O'Connor was the principal Irish writer of the day. What he noted in her work is still true 68 years later. Also in the 80s, she published three collections of stories, including her masterpiece, Antiquities. For a time... She was central in Irish letters in that curious and unfathomable habit of fashion and happenstance that literary fate goes in for. Some years before her ace dawn intervention, I remember being in the writer's retreat of Anna McCarrick. When she arrived, she had been allotted an attic room at the top of some rickety stairs, and I was luxuriating by mere luck in one of the bigger rooms, so we swapped. Not because of any noble instinct of mine, but because, well... She was Val Mulcairns. I remember being in awe, even of the letters she received, arrayed on the hall table, from her eminent agent and her British publisher. Bullocks against indigence, I was signally lacking myself. In that time, there were none of the stupendous Irish fiction publishers that put electricity into the grid today. Sometimes a writer can live a long time and seem, therefore, to outlive their allotment of fame whatever fame is, the admiration of the tribe, a just elevation, an error of understanding, well, who knows. As a student of Latin at Trinity, I did note the facts of the long game and the accident of it all. At any rate, I suppose it is a pity we are not better able to celebrate and revere writers always when they are that bit older. In Ireland, we have the indomitable examples of Jennifer Johnson and Edna O'Brien, so it is not always the case. Val's reputation had been moved from the ballroom to the anteroom, certainly. But I am not sure it bothered her very much. Last time I drove her home to Dawkey, we were talking about writing, and she said she was anxious to get going or something. She felt there had been too great a gap. I offered the suggestion that she might justifiably rest another little while on her perpetual laurels. She was definitely not keen on that. On going into her house, in the confidence of her 90 beautifully lived years, she offered the observation that as long as you didn't come down with a very serious illness, why, you could live forever. <laughs> it was Ben Kiley who actually made the speech at Ace Dawn that got me elected. I was 34, as I say, the youngest person elected up to that time, until an even younger character in the person of a radiant Dermot Bulger got in some time later. Ben Kiley read a passage from the last page of a wild novel I had written called The Engine of Our Light. It isn't in print. The late Tony Cronin said it was a lost masterpiece of Irish literature, which was just like him, high words on behalf of the youngster. The late Aidan Higgins ended his review with a wide sweep of the uplifted hat. On, on. Everyone else, insofar as it was noticed, said it was pants. 
and worse than that, pants that didn't fit. But Ben Kiley must have struggled through it, or at least the last page, which was quite possibly the best page, at least your ordeal was over. He read out the passage and declared, anyone who writes like that, I wish I could do the Oma accent like that, anyone who writes like that is the company I want to keep. The ears of the assembled members of Aestorna pricked up. I didn't know him at all, although I knew Prox Opera, which was that rare bird, a hit novella, and nothing happens in Carmen Cross, which, come to think of it, was that equally rare thing, a hit novel. We moved into a flat on North Great Georgia Street on the strength of their efforts and the resulting clues, the stipend that miraculously comes with membership. We needed it. Let me take a moment, delicately, to praise Charles Hawhey, who agreed to Tony Cronin's suggestion to invent a body that might support writers. After all, even Horace and Catullus, Propertius and Livy, needed the mercy of Mycenaeus. Anyway, it meant we, indeed the landlord, a certain magisterial character called David Norris, <laughs> didn't have to worry about the rent. Prior to this, in humbler lodgings in Little Jerusalem, Ali used to hide under the bed when the rent lady came round. Not because we didn't like her, but because we did, and hated disappointing her. We were heating the flat with Ali's grandmother's fuel vouchers. Writers have to survive their pennilessness somehow. Ali's grandmother had been dead for two years. <laughs> Indeed, it was in that same period of possibly happy indigence, writing seemed to be a task independent of actual funds as far as the force of it went, the happiness of it, that I received a letter from Revenue telling me to attend their court on St. Stephen's Green. Here, I remember, was an actual judge on a high dais and a battery of lawyers and whatnot ranged at a further table. Out in the corridor, I had sat with trembling business people, clutching briefcases and possibly also straws. When I was called in, the judge asked me what I had earned in the last year. Nothing, I said. <laughs> but you are a writer, are you not? I am. I was writing all morning, in fact, and I'm really looking forward to getting back to it. When you say nothing, do you mean a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds? I mean nothing, I said. You didn't make a tax return, and you are obliged to do so, even if the amount is zero, he said. I will do so, I said. That is the law, he said. Let me not see you here again. <laughs> then Val and Ben to the rescue. A few years after that, Ali fell pregnant. Ascended pregnant? Come to think of it, Dermot Bulger was somewhat mixed up in that. <laughs> now it can be told, Dermot. Ali and I had been trying for a baby for about seven years. Then Dermot got me playing soccer out on the AstroTurf pitch at Dublin Airport. It was an eclectic group of players, mostly writers and used car salesmen, the latter, I should think, doing rather better financially than the former, or I hope so. Anyway, all that exercise seemed to shake things up somewhat. <laughs> And suddenly Ali was pregnant. Just to emphasize the healthy and blithesome effect of soccer, it was twins. <laughs> they were born in 1992, and my soccer career continued unabated for a few short years more until frequent injury obliged me to retire. Every Friday night I would sneak away religiously. By the time the twins were 18 months old, they would latch onto a leg each and try and stop me going out. I had to walk the length of the hallway with a baby on each shoe, me lovingly dislodging them, but determined to escape. <laughs> Perhaps it is not unrelated that my daughter, Carl, became a fierce Liverpool fan 
watching every match from age nine in our distant old house in the Wicklow Mountains and is now a sports journalist with Metro Online in London. <laughs> Val might have thought twice and not bothered herself with assisting a half a quarter proven writer. Ben Kiley might have saved his powder for another brighter prospect. But the assistance of a writer is not just about books. It was the beginning of the most important thing I have done in my life, which was to have the responsibility of the babies, the twins, Merlin and Cora, and then five years later, Toby. It is true to say that being elected to Estona allowed me to become a father. A writer I already was, and I cannot imagine anything would have stopped me, but children. There is a financial fright in having children. There is a terror. The concern not to involve them in your elected pennilessness is great. Those jars of baby food don't come cheap. Nappies are unconscionably dear. Years later, I must record, I saw Ben Kiley in a cafe in Wicklow. He was with a friend and minder, and he was quite frail looking in truth. I wanted to thank him for what he had done, but I held back. Like a fool, I held back. I didn't go down to him. I went to CUS in Leeson Street, founded by Cardinal Newman as a feeder school for the new Catholic University on Stevens Green. Father Gus Hurley was principal in my time and taught English. He was a sort of genius teacher, really, that many writers acknowledge having. Milton's Paradise Lost, Thomas Kinsler's Another September, he burned them into us. On one occasion, instead of an essay, he allowed me to submit a story, short story, the first thing I ever wrote. I remember so vividly the sense of freedom, of escape from the rigours of exegesis for which I had no talent. Like many another writer, it was an English teacher who let the outlaw go. You have to try and get down to Mexico before Pat Garrett shoots you in the back. <laughs> but a great teacher in a mysterious way has that back from the get-go. In 1986, in Little Jerusalem, Father Hurley happened to be past the door of the precarious flat where Ali and I were living. He looked dishevelled, distracted and strange. Indeed, I was told later he had had a breakdown, one of the quantum penalties of genius. I didn't say a word to him, not wishing to disturb him or maybe afraid of what I saw. Not young and not renewable, but man, as Kinsler wrote. But I should have run after him and touched the hem of his garment regardless. Long before election to Estona in my early 20s, I happened to meet Thomas and Eleanor Kinsler. The two were standing together at some function in a manner I noted, a unit of being possibly breathing at the same pace, at the same metrical measure, the iambics of love. She said, on no account was I to go being a poet. It was much too hard a life. Thomas smiling enigmatically at her side. <laughs> anyway, at school in COS, there was a wondrous boy in my class called Vadim. He was one of the sons of James Plunkett, the writer. Vadim and I had a little club complete with homemade membership cards called the Wolf Club. And every lunchtime, we went down to St. Stephen's Green and I suppose had appropriately wolfish adventures. <laughs> Over one summer, we exchanged chapters of a novel sending the instalments on those small blue pages, their lines a darker blue, in those days universally used for letters, as if an Irish letter writer, by definition, would not have too much to say. <laughs> Vadim was very critical of my contributions, and I think felt they were not up to his standard. I am sure he was right. Anyway, he was quite a boy, that Vadim. 
At his father at that time had just published Strumpet City, a title which inspired a strange glee in one of our other teachers, also a priest. He not very subtly intimated to us the meaning of Strumpet, which even when he further intimated with smirks and cackles was beyond us. <laughs> it was not a very lofty level of engagement with such a classic novel, I suppose. At home, my father had the issue of The Bell published in 1954 and edited with a preface by Tony Cronin that had published James Plunkett for the first time in book form, The Eagles and the Trumpets. Tony Cronin, himself only 24 at the time, begins his preface in Ciceronian measure. Anybody may write a preface to the dead, all that are needed being enthusiasm and a little style. An introduction to the living is a different matter. Isn't that wonderful? James Plunkett was 34. That little book's fire still hasn't gone out. It is true that there has been a number of Irish fiction renaissances. It's just the older ones get replaced. The new city is built on the ruins of the old. I still have that issue. It costs two and six. I suppose it is worth a little more now. Its spiritual worth was always immeasurable. One day, Vadim Kelly brought me home. He lived in Terranure. When we entered his house, modest and modern, we heard the strains of music from one of the rooms. I looked in through the crack of the door at two people there who paid me no heed. At first I thought the man was dancing, his, his arms held up like the branches of Aunt Annie's crabapple tree stirring in the wind. It was James Plunkett and his wife playing the viola and the piano together. Mrs. Plunkett was smiling up at him, laughing without making the sound of laughter. It was a vision of domestic harmony, literally, that I was not privy to, say, at home. Our house was large, old and echoing, and it was rare to meet anyone. And anyway, no one played the piano or the viola, and certainly not together. I'm still standing there at the door, looking in, 11 or 12, entranced. I knew what I was looking at was important, but of course couldn't have said why. Avatars, to be effective, don't even have to notice you at the door. Just saying this now, I think of Blake and his wife sitting in their apple tree, although Mr. and Mrs. Plunkett, of course, were fully clothed. <laughs> when Val and Ben Kiley got me into Estona, I was similarly entranced to go along to the first meeting. Many of the august faces I didn't know, the painters, the composers, even the writers. The faces of artists are often a document of their struggles, palimpsest upon palimpsest, a biography of sorts. But one face thrilled me to behold. It was the same James Plunkett, now some 20 years older, characteristically moving along the room at a seemingly different speed and even in a different world than everyone else. About strange, deep business, maybe. He belonged to a post-revolutionary era in Ireland, but was a lamp for any present time. I admired, I admired him so much, it gave me a headache to see him. Not too long after that, he said something lovely about my work in an interview. To go from the viola to the sweet violence of praise seemed a long journey. Years later, yet again, I saw him in Bray. I didn't know why he was there, far from Terranure anyway. He was going along more slowly, his old pace modified, entirely alone and again, like Father Harley, looking somewhat distray and distracted. He was frail too, concentrating mightily on crossing the road without injury. And here I am saying again, I didn't greet him, I didn't say hello. Of course, it occurs to me as I say this, 
I didn't know him. I had never actually had a conversation with him. It was all at a curious distance, and the distance was unbridgeable in the upshot. So seemingly, three great sins of omission, one might say. Ben Kiley, Father Hurley, James Plunkett. But just because I failed in those instances didn't mean I didn't love those people. I revered them. Their good words and their good offices had given me a life and given Ali and me a place, a site to have our babies and do our work. Perhaps I am finally, just now, running after them. When you are young, there is a sort of ache to get on, even if we are being truthful, to get above, to get up onto the drier ground anyhow. I left Trinity when I was 22 and prom promptly became, in great secrecy, a writer. For many years I was published and even praised, but I had no money. The problem of money in the writer's life. Patrick Kavanagh said they don't want writers to be talking about money because they don't want to give them any. <laughs> I think of the beneficent good, indeed, that the canoeist would have rendered to Kavanagh standing outside his house with a borrowed sixpence in his hand and wondering whether to put it in the gas meter or buy a glass of whiskey. Some years ago, the eminent economist Colin McCarthy said, there was no need for the state to subvent writers because they will write anyway. This conjures up the image of a sort of predetermined state of literary endeavor peopled by strange creatures immune to money. There's something in it and nothing in it. After all, we might say the same of economists. They don't need to be paid because they will what? Economize anyway. <laughs> Hardly. To give Ms. Jew, I have known writers who seem to me natural occurrences, like robins and their songs, or wrens. I think of Michael Hartnett, a man so unusual, so concentrated, that he was like a piece of the 17th century broken off and rendered into a gold coin. He wrote many truly great poems, none more so than this one, which is about pennilessness as it happens, among other things. Death of an Irishwoman. Ignorant in the sense she ate monotonous food and thought the world was flat, and pagan in the sense she knew the things that moved at night were neither dogs nor cats but pookas and dark-faced men, she nevertheless had fierce pride. But sentenced in the end to eat thin diminishing porridge in a stone-cold kitchen, she clenched her brittle hands around a world she could not understand. I loved her from the day she died. She was a summer dance at the crossroads. She was a card game where a nose was broken. She was a song that nobody sings. She was a house ransacked by soldiers. She was a language seldom spoken. She was a child's purse full of useless things. It is those useless things that novels and plays and poems are made out of. Perhaps it was that Perhaps that was what Colin McCarthy was objecting to, paying for useless things like that. Things that great souls are made out of too. Michael Hartner, did I say he was a gold coin? Maybe a farthing is better. A coin indeed with a wren on it, the old money. A poet so quick, so restless, so loved, so awaited. And only briefly here, a bird alighting on the field of life as if just for a blessed moment. At a hand clap, off he flew. Even I, who did not know him as a close friend, relished him, and in my secret heart celebrated my acquaintance with him. It was delicious to know him, 
even as he seemed to row himself ever quicker towards that bloody waterfall. Fiercely, fiercely. When I heard about my election to Aistone, I happened to be in Anna McCarrick, the writer's retreat in Monaghan. The playwright Tom Murphy arrived the same day in his BMW car. <laughs> that impressed the hell out of me, or maybe just filled me with a sort of hope. It was an old BMW, but it was still a Beamer. Tom himself seemed very friendly, but quite sardonic, and just at that time, I don't think he was too content with how things were going generally in his career. Of course, he was one of the best playwrights that had ever lived. The equal in my mind, and because I was young, almost of the same antiquity as the Roman playwrights I had read at Trinity. One day, we sat in the sun together outside that old house at Tyrone Guthrie's, and he said he thought maybe writing wasn't worth all the trouble. It was probably too late for him, but he could save a younger man. He had heard me singing and said maybe I should give up the writing and go on the road. <laughs> Much more fulfilling. What a wild hope. It was the Gigli concert in 1983, indeed a play about the power of singing, that had made me want to write a play. It dismayed me that he thought that he was obliged to think, even for a moment, that the business wasn't worth the candle in the upshot. But when he heard I had just been elected a stoner, he stood up and shook my hand. Don't worry about anything, he said. That's the best thing I've heard all year. He seemed old to me, but he also seemed young, going from gloom to delight in a heartbeat. He was, in fact, 55. There was no reputation at the time greater than his. He was the apothecary for a thousand Irish ills, and yet he was doubtful. It is partly the lack of money, but also a much stranger thing, a sort of force that storms against the actual body of the artist. There is an attrition rate that is sometimes even visible. Ali and I lived on North Great Georgia Street for seven years by mercy of the canoes. The poet and novelist Philip Casey lived the other side of O'Connell Street in a small house his father had bought for him, and he often came over to visit us. How can I describe to you the gentle intensity of that man, his lovely honesty, his country courtesy. How funny he was, how scrupulous in the matters of the heart and the soul, how he never gave offence in his conversation and who bore offence indeed with a sort of kingly indifference. I'd go down and wait for him at the corner of Parnell Street. I would glimpse his body swinging on his crutches in the distance, fiercely, through the endless light of summer evenings, through the tormenting dark of winters, why didn't he just use his angelic wings was beyond me. His shock of thick hair like a kindling fire. When he shook my hand, I had always to beg him to remember not to crush it. He has such a mighty grip. He wrote the Ban River Trilogy, three river-like novels, one might say, and many, many lovely poems that I lovingly and fiercely recommend to you. He wrote against the odds. He wrote without thought of surrender. Philip was often in hospital for long stretches. Last December, I was coming back from Paris. I had heard that he was in the hospice in Blanchardstown. I wanted to email him to let him know I would be dropping by on my way home from the airport, but I sent it at the last possible moment because I didn't want him to say no. I had been warned by Dermot that he might say no. The nurse at the desk said Philip was in room eight upstairs. So I went up with that nervy bounce a hospital can induce. The doors into the rooms were glass, and I peered into room eight. 
But there was only an old geezer in there looking forlorn at his bedside. No sign of our Philip. I went down and asked the nurse was she sure he was in eight room. There seemed to be in room eight. There seemed to be another man in there. No, she said, that's Philip's room. So I traipsed back up and of course it was Philip in his extremity. He was mid-thought as I came in, but he rose like a boy and hugged me. Ah, Sebastian! I was so glad I had come. Dear, dear Philip, as sweet to each other as brothers. We talked for a few hours and then off I went as blithe as a starling, satiated with his company. In his next email he talked of the history of Ireland he was writing. The whole damn thing, he said. I will need another ten years because there's an awful lot of bloody history in this country and I plan to finish it, let me tell you. A few weeks later I emailed again and asked him how he was and he said he had made it home for Christmas. A few weeks after that I asked again how he was and I got a short answer from which, even in email form, the pain and the anguish arose. And he was gone. Yeah, well, yes. It all passes. I won't be the first damn fool to notice that. Einstein said, we don't have the, su the sufficient amount of senses to understand that time is not even as we conceive it. All things, he said, are happening always, everywhere. There is no such thing as narrative time. So much for fiction. This dying. Let me close with another stupendous woman, Leland Bartwell. She was a terrific writer. She was an unstoppable writer. Girl on a Bicycle is a most extraordinary book. Our old landlord, David Norris, has called it the best big house novel of the 20th century. She, in the early 80s, was instrumental in publishing my first book, A Novella Macris Garden with the Irish Writers Co-op, an early version of something as magical, say, as today's tram press. So we had got to know each other in that easy way I thought was usual, but I see now was not. She engendered, she engineered friendship. She was the Isambard Kingdom Brunel of literary bridges. <laughs> Born into an Anglo-Irish family, the homes full of painters and dignitaries, she nevertheless lived mostly on the crumbling margins of society and society's economies, at that hem where everything starts to fray and economic theories flounder, where maybe she could work best or perhaps where writing and having children had placed her. A couple of years after publishing my novella, she phoned me and asked me would I like to help her to exercise some polo ponies. She was an expert horsewoman. She was moonlighting, as it were, at a little stables near Sandymon Strand, owned by some wealthy person. When I got there, must have been a Saturday, she was standing in the dark of one of the stalls, and I soon saw that she was crying. I had had a poem in the Irish Times that morning. I've just read your poem, she said, and now look at me. Anyway, we saddled up two of the polo ponies and headed off to the Strand to exercise them. Now, polo ponies, I will tell you, just in case it is ever helpful, must never be galloped. If they get a taste for galloping, they will move too quickly on the polo ground and run out across the boundaries and possibly not be seen again. Leland, in her gay and contented way, instructed me in this as we clopped along. Even if you were never on Sandy Monstrand, you will know it from Ulysses. An eternity does still seem to hover there. I knew it as a child, walking from the environs of Monkstown, where we lived, all the way around to Ring's End, looking for pram wheels on the dump there that might serve as wheels for a go-kart. On we went, talking about nothing and everything, poetry and family and possibly prams. I was just back from a disastrous year in Switzerland 
broken relationship, shattered dreams and all. I was back at home and miserable, as hypochondriacal and as mildly crazy as you like. Leela <laughs> never minded things like that in a person. If she liked you, she rested her faith in you. She didn't need you to be anything but the self you were able to present that day. As such, she was a deep, deep pleasure to be with. We reached the edge of Joycean eternity, as it were, and headed out on the wide strand, skirting along those deep tidal rivers that cross and cross again when the sea is out. The tide doesn't just go out on Sandy Mount. It emigrates to England <laughs> and then comes back dangerous and disgruntled. There is everywhere a sense of imminent flood, erasure, danger, which suited us down to the ground. Suddenly, gradually, suddenly, whatever was bothering her that day was falling away and whatever was bothering me likewise. We just ever so slightly opened up the ponies and went cantering delicately towards the tiny long line of the sea on the horizon. Cargo ships out there looked like mere balsa wood hovercraft on the shimmering acres. The gulls didn't mind us. The sand drummed back at us. You might as well call those ponies Caribbean musicians. I was up in my stirrups now, because in truth we were gathering speed. Then Leland rose like a veritable jockey and let out a great cry and gave her a pony his head. And off she streaked like the loudest and nicest banshee that ever was in Ireland. Her hair she always wore wild, but this was wildness beyond wildness. Eternal Leland! I roused my pony after. We galloped like souls that had never known such happiness. We hallooed and we caterwauled. Her whole body was laughing. We wept for damnable joy. We ran those ponies off the very pitch of Ireland, and I don't know if they were ever good for polo again. And I would apologise to the unknown owner, except I cherish that day when Leland and I finally won our Irish freedom. <laughs> At 63 myself, writing this, I have been working for 41 years. I am keeping an eye on the time, Pache Einstein. Part of the reason I accepted the laureateship in such high excitement was just that. It has been a long time. But like all time looked back on, it seems to barely have dimension. A private Bayo tapestry, but even a long, long tapestry, has only the depth of a communion wafer. What remains true is, I have been privileged to encounter some extraordinary souls, yes, but it is the accidental, impromptu nature of it that impresses me. Idle friendships, people thrown together, and sometimes never a suspicion that not only was it adding to the value of my life, but actually, in the upshot, constituted that value. Avatars, guides, exemplars, headed up by the avatar-in-chief, my ordinary hunchbacked great-aunt Annie, before time was even time. I have laboured even to begin to understand the world since I have been obliged and even privileged, let us say again, to visit it, just like anyone. I think it has behoved me to do that, but I couldn't but have stumbled in the dark without my secular avatars, without my own versions of them written on the heart, scribed on the soul. They may not even be true versions, but even the errors will have served me. It might be all luck and happiness, happenstance, but it has led me betimes into marble halls, 
I think of these figures every day. I refer to them like texts or aphorisms. I live by them. I live sometimes through them. And I live towards them, even unto the waterfall. Thank you.